This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, March 16th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Rape is among the worst crimes one can commit. And yet police departments have massive backlogs of untested rape kits that could provide evidence in those cases. How is it possible that police seem less than interested in solving these violent crimes? Clark Neely, Vice President for Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute, comments. This has been a problem uh, both in my home state of Kentucky It's a problem in Virginia. It's a problem in North Carolina. And I assume it's a problem in many other states. And that is uh, rape kits, the sometimes the only piece of information that police have to identify a rapist go untested. And at least in one case in Virginia, uh, one rape kit went back to the 80s in terms of and it just just they just sit there. And I can't imagine why. Yeah, it seems to be a real problem, this sort of epidemic of untested rape kits. It, it is difficult to understand how this could possibly happen. It's such a serious crime. It's uh, oftentimes involving, uh, you know, serial rapists. So it's, it's incredibly important that the person be identified uh, and prosecuted and taken off the street. And all I can think of is that it, it's a question of incentives. Uh, it seems that rape cases are, are particularly difficult. It can be um, a, a real challenge uh, just to identify the perpetrator and then to get a conviction. And perhaps it's the case that uh, police are reluctant to investigate these cases or put less emphasis on them because they're more challenging. So um, when you consider what I assume is the public outcry for uh, – or I should say public outrage when they when the public learns that rape kits are going untested and presumably rapists are not being uh, identified. Is it possible at least that maybe police don't test rape kits because the likelihood of identifying some sort of random rapist is very low and maybe sp- spending the resources on testing those rape kits pro- is unlikely to yield much benefit? That that sounds to me like a rationalization at best and perhaps even a cop-out. Uh, yes, some of the results will come back in a way that's unhelpful. In other words, you, there won't be – you know, there is this national database of, uh, you, you know, of DNA that they can compare the results against. And of course, sometimes you won't get a hit. But the idea that that would somehow make it pointless or, uh, you know, a, a, you know, bad use of resources I, I, I think is uh, untenable. And of course, we have to go back to the seriousness of the crime. This is one of the most serious crimes uh, that that you can commit, that can be committed. And the idea that that not just one or two, but but apparently many police departments um, are insufficiently motivated to follow through and at least make an effort to determine uh, the identity of the person uh, who is alleged to have committed the crime is is perplexing. Because it would seem that the incentives on one side, which is a public backlash against departments clearly not doing a job that they've committed uh, committed to doing, has to it has to be very a very strong uh, reaction. So the whatever incentive is is causing police departments to not focus on this or not make this uh, a priority in these cases has to be very strong as well. 
Well, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Uh, you know, uh, police and prosecutors are like anybody else. They respond to incentives. Uh, one of the most shocking figures I've encountered since I've you know, been, been doing criminal justice work here at Cato is that in 2016, there were more arrests for marijuana-related offenses than for all violent crimes combined. I find that a shocking uh, figure. Uh, on one hand, it's shocking. But on the other hand, if you think about the incentives in play, uh, of course, it's easier to uh, you know arrest somebody and presumably to convict them for drug-related offenses. Uh, and of course, hiding in all of this or not hiding in all of this, but it's important to remember that probably there's a much greater likelihood uh, that when you take down someone who's um, selling drugs, that they'll have some cash that you can take or a car or a house. So you've got the specter of civil forfeiture, uh, further warping incentives. Uh, presumably, you know, most rapists uh, don't have a, a whole closet full of cash the way some people who sell drugs might. And so we look at all of the incentives that uh, come to play here and may not be some, you know, huge, uh, you know, mismatch or, or, you know, the incentives maybe aren't all that strong. Maybe it's enough that they're just there at the margin. And if you wake up one day and say, hey, what should I investigate today? Um, you Maybe it's easier to do your job if you're just going after some drug dealer or alleged drug dealer than trying to close a cold rape case. And maybe that's all there is to it. What function, uh, just so we're, everybody's clear, what function do rape kits perform? Well, they enable you to do a couple things. First, um, to determine whether there is any uh, DNA material on the victim uh, that can be uh, – obviously, that can be semen, but that can also be uh, skin under the uh, fingernails or toenails or hair, things like that. So um, essentially, what you're able to determine is whether or not the alleged attacker left any DNA material behind. And if so, you can compare that uh, the DNA against other DNA that you already have in some uh, local or federal database. And it's not, from what I understand, it is not uncommon to get a match. And then, of course, you know at least uh, who the person is. Now, it's also the case that in many uh, instances of where there's been an alleged rape, the, uh, the victim already knows who the perpetrator is. And so in those and, – and there may be not even any dispute uh, that they – that they had sexual contact. So in those cases, there may be some rationale uh, for not uh, going to the uh, the expense, not you know incurring the expense of testing the rape kit. Uh, but that's not that doesn't appear to be what's going on here. It's not the case that there's sort of you know some conscious choice to to not test the rape kits where there wouldn't be any point. Um, it seems to be just across the board. There's a backlog of a tremendous black backlog of these kits. But that could be one reason. You have to assume that with thousands of untested rape kits, some of those may have been not tested for the reasons that you just talked about. Uh, some of them have to have been not tested where, one, they would get a hit. Two, it would be clear who the person was. Uh, person, that person probably has a driver's license and an address. And so there's no other explanation but negligence for at least some of these. That certainly seems to be the case, or at least uh, insufficient incentives to, uh, to, to properly and completely investigate these cases, which of course would include testing the rape kit unless there is some strong reason not to. And, and it is true. I mean, and sometimes uh, they're able to uh, resolve the case without testing the kit. Uh, they know who was involved and they, they're able to resolve the case in some other way. Um, and... Uh, so there may be reasons to not test a particular kit, but that's not, again, what's going on here. This is just a, uh, a failure across the board to test 
you know, thousands and thousands of rape kits, not because there's some, been some determination that there would be no point. And again, it, it's 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 impossible to imagine that that the the officers involved don't care or that they don't think this is important. Um, it really strikes me that this has got to be a question of incentives, and there's just insufficient. Uh, you know, there's an insufficient incentive for them to follow through and complete the testing on these rape kits. And it's good that there's been this backlash. It's good that there's been a pushback. It's good that legislatures uh, are are becoming aware of the breadth of this problem and the intensity of people's uh, anger that this very fundamental step in an investigative process is not being taken. And so there's been reaction. There have been some legislatures that have committed more money to it. There's a law that was passed in Virginia that mandate uh, the testing of all rape kits within a certain amount of time. And so progress is being made, but it's astonishing we got to the point that we did. Is there any price to be paid by individual departments or uh chiefs of police or individual officers for not uh, undertaking this important task? No, and that's – it fits perfectly within our, our near-zero accountability policy for law enforcement. We have in this country what amounts to a near-zero policy of, of non-accountability for law enforcement and this fits perfectly well within that. No one's going to lose their job over this. Um, Probably no one's been demoted over it, uh, there, and unfortunately, that's just part of a pattern uh, of, of non-accountability uh, in law enforcement, which is, in, in my judgment, one of the single most important things in criminal justice reform today is the overall lack of accountability by actors within the system, whether they're engaged in deliberate misconduct, uh, you know, deliberate uh, excessive use of force uh, against a restrained prisoner, for example, which we see far too often or simple negligence or indifference, as in this case. Uh, but somebody ought to be held to account. Um, almost always no one is held to account, and that's a problem that certainly needs to be addressed on a more systemic level. Clark Neely is Vice President for Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 